Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to The Haunted Collection with your host, writer, paranormal investigator, and haunted collector, Kevin Kane, back to bring you more chilling ghostly tales. As we begin our program, as always, let me invite you to visit my website, myhaunteddolls.com. Check out my shop while you're there. I have all of the books I've written out there available for purchase. You can get your autographed copy today. Also, follow the link page to my YouTube channel, My Haunted Dolls, where you can Watch and or listen to some of the video clips of evidence I've captured from the haunted items that I've collected over the years, plus some of the haunted places that I've visited. Also, I have live feeds, so be sure to check those out and watch out for the next live feed to be scheduled so you can tune in and see if you yourself can capture any EVPs or any strange goings-on live on my YouTube. Tonight, in this episode, we have a special story for you, one that I first heard when I was just a little child, and I found it kind of creepy. Stories about ghost children usually do creep me out a little bit as most people do often get creeped out by those ghostly little kids, especially the creepy little girls that appear out of nowhere. And that's what this episode's story is about. This one is called The Memphis Jar Ghost. Clara Robertson hated to have to practice scales, and she hated the way her music teacher said to her, Miss Clara, you will not play pieces, not even hymns, until you have mastered your scales. You must practice, practice, practice. Clara, who was 13, was not particularly interested in playing hymns, She did not really care about learning to play anything on the piano, not if it required the repetitious and untunedful ascending and descending of the keyboard. However, the study of piano was required of the fifty young ladies who were privileged to attend the Brinkley Female College in Memphis. So... Clara sat dutifully at the piano in the upstairs music room of the old home that housed the college, and she tried to master the hateful assignment her teacher had given her. She sat with her back rigid as she had been taught to do, and she concentrated on holding her fingers in the graceful arc favored by her teacher. 
As Clara was playing the G major scale for the tenth time, she looked up from the keyboard and saw a little girl. The most gruesome creature Clara had ever seen standing near the piano. The child's eyes stared from sunken sockets and her scraggly hair framed a face as bony as that of a skeleton. A tattered pink dress, dank and moldy, hung limply from her thin shoulders. There was a deeper pink blotch or stain on the front of that musty dress. Clara screamed in terror and ran from the room as fast as she could away from that gruesome sight. But the apparition followed her down the hall and into an adjoining room where Clara tried to hide in a monstrous feather bed. The strange child stood beside the bed and, to Clara's horror, reached out to touch the pillow Clara was using as a shield. Only when it seemed that Clara would go into a paroxysm of fear did the figure finally vanish. Clara leaped from the bed and ran down the stairs. In the downstairs hallway, she bumped into a teacher almost knocking the startled woman down and blurted out what had happened to her upstairs. The commotion attracted a cluster of students to the hallway and they listened in amazement to Clara's account of her strange encounter. Their reactions were mixed. Some of them believed every word Clara said Two or three seemed on the verge of hysterics themselves, and others ridiculed Clara for telling such a big fib. Clara, still upset, was taken home where she told her parents about seeing the pathetic phantom. Her parents listened patiently, but they felt sure that Clara had either been the victim of a school joke or that her imagination had run wild. So, when Clara declared, I will not ever go back to that place again, her father said calmly, Of course you will go back. You will return to school tomorrow morning. Nothing will happen to you. Clara's father, J.R. Robertson, was one of Memphis's leading attorneys, and his words were persuasive at home as well as in the courtroom. So Clara returned to the school the next day. And if she spent more time repeating her story of the ghostly visitation than she did studying her lessons, at least she was there. And just as her father predicted... Nothing unusual happened. 
The following day, however, the little girl ghost appeared again. Clara and the two other pupils were in the practice room together, and all three of them saw the child in the musty pink dress. All three pupils fled from the room in terror. This time, it took powerful persuasion on the part of her father to get Clara to even go back to Brinkley's Female College. But she did return, surprisingly. There were four uneventful days, and the young ladies at the school had almost stopped talking about the ghost. Then, exactly one week after she had first appeared to Clara, that initial appearance was on February 21st, 1871 the grisly figure returned as on the two previous occasions Clara was in the practice room when she saw the child again Clara fled in fright on this occasion she met Miss Jackie Boone one of her teachers in the hallway Miss Boone said, quite matter-of-factly, to Clara, to Clara, You must return to the practice room and ask that troubled spirit what she wants. Come on, I'll go with you. And she took Clara's hand. Reassured by her teacher's words and by her presence, Clara did go back upstairs. From the door of the music room, she saw the figure quite distinctly. But Miss Boone later reported having only a hazy view of the child. Go ahead, ask her, Miss Boone prompted Clara. Clara asked, What in the name of the Lord do you want? Somewhere from a nurse from an elderly aunt she had learned the traditional way of addressing spirits in that way in response to Clara's question the small ghost identified herself as Lizzie Davis daughter of the Colonel Davis who had built the fine old house then occupied by the Brinkley Female College Then she reportedly said, Valuables are buried in a jar under a stump fifty yards from the house. The ghost pointed a scrawny finger in the direction of the stump. Then she disappeared. Clara heard the message quite distinctly, and so did another student who was in the room. But Miss Boone said she was not able to distinguish the words. The return of the ghost and the message about the buried treasure created great excitement in the school. And with fifty flurried females reporting the strange events, 
Much of Memphis shared the agitation occasioned by the visitations. The excitement intensified when Clara's father announced that he intended to help his daughter dig for the buried jar. A large crowd of spectators gathered in the yard to watch the digging, and there was considerable pushing and shoving as they all tried to get near enough to see what Clara, her father, and a helper he had brought along were doing. First, Mr. Robertson stepped off the specified 50 feet from the corner of the house and selected the proper stump. Then Clara began digging. The heavy shovel was difficult for her to handle and the ground was hard. From excitement or exertion, it was hard to tell which, Clara finally fainted dead away. The search had to be halted until she was revived. After she regained consciousness, somebody brought a chair from a classroom and Clara sat near the stump. After things calmed down, Mr. Robertson handed the shovel to his helper, and that man began to excavate a sizable hole around the stump. Careful now, careful, Mr. Robertson warned. The hole was getting deeper and deeper. Better summon that little ghost girl to come dig. Call little Lizzie. Someone in the crowd called. There was much laughter following. But just then, the shovel struck a hard object, and the laughter died down immediately. Mr. Robertson got down into the hole and lifted out a large glass jar, the kind frequently found in drugstores of the period. The jar had a sticky coating of mold and mud, but spectators saw a faded brown envelope and several small packages inside. Open it, open it, open it, the crowd chanted. But Mr. Robertson shook his head. The ghost, he explained, had said that the jar was not to be opened for 60 days. Mr. Robertson was as curious about the contents of the jar and as eager to open it as any of the spectators were, likely more so, but as he told the watchers, he believed he had better do exactly what the pitiful little phantom had said to do. She, the ghost, told Clara not to open the jar for sixty days, so we will wait, he said. He wrapped the jar in heavy paper and took it home with him. News of the discovery of the mystery jar swept through Memphis. Accounts of the eerie doings filled columns of the local newspaper, the Memphis Avalanche, and people talked of little else. Women were afraid to be left alone after dark, 
and even brave men avoided walking down alone in the Memphis poorly lighted streets. Children had terrible nightmares about bony ghosts in pink garments. Bartenders did a thriving business calling a potent concoction called ghost cocktails and selling it to the crowds. From as far away as Boulevard, Tennessee and Holly Springs, Mississippi came reports of sightings of the pink-clad wrath. Meantime, Mr. Robertson was faced with the problem of protecting the precious jar until the late April date when it could be opened. The safest place, it seems, would have been in the vault of the bank, but the ghostly instructions reportedly contained a clause requiring that the jar be kept on the Robertson's premises. The jar, Mr. Robertson knew, would be a tempting prize for burglars as well as for curiosity seekers, so it was of the utmost importance that it be hidden in a place so obscure or so unlikely that no one would think of looking for it there. He considered and discarded the advisability of hiding the jar inside a chimney, covering it with flour and the barrel in the pantry, storing it in a trunk of old clothes in the attic, lowering it into the cistern, or even concealing it behind a false wall in the closet. After he had cudgeled his brain as hard as he could, and was about to despair of thinking of a safe depository for the jar, Mr. Robertson suddenly had a brilliant idea. The Robertsons had, to the rear of their home, a sturdy privy. It was a three-holer, discreetly and artfully screened by a trellis of climbing roses and honeysuckle. The outhouse became the hiding place for the glass jar. Mr. Robertson tied a stout cord around the neck of the container and suspended it out of sight beneath a seat. He told no one about its location, not even Clara. By the time April arrived, Memphis was mad with speculation about the contents of the jar. Interest was so great that Mr. Robertson arranged to open the jar on the stage of the Greenlaw Opera House on 2nd Street in full view of everyone in attendance. He rented the Opera House for the occasion, already, already referred to in Memphis as the Grand Opening. Then, an upsetting accident occurred. A few nights before the date set for the jar's opening, a group of friends were visiting Mr. Robertson at his home. They were conversing in the parlor when they heard unusual noises in the backyard. Mr. Robertson went out to investigate he stayed outside so long that his friends became concerned. 
Their concern changed to alarm when a servant dashed into the parlor and shouted, Mr. Robertson, he's laying out there with blood everywhere. Must be dead. Dead, I tell you. The friends rushed out into the yard where they did indeed find Mr. Robertson lying in a pool of blood. However, he was not dead, only unconscious as a result of a blow to his head. A doctor, Dr. H.J. Shaw, was summoned. Dr. Shaw revived Mr. Robertson and treated a jagged four-inch wound on his head. When he was finally able to speak, Mr. Robertson told of being confronted by four burly men who grabbed him and threatened him with instant death unless he showed them where the jar was hidden. Thoroughly frightened, Mr. Robertson showed them the secret hiding place. After the ruffians had the jar in their possession, one of them struck Mr. Robertson a vicious blow on the head with a metal instrument, rendering him insensible. So the jar was gone. No trace was ever found of the jar or of the men who stole it. The disappearance of the celebrated jar was marked by the appearance of skeptics who declared the whole thing was a fraud, just a giant hoax. Such accusations upset Mr. Robertson, a man with a solid reputation for honesty and integrity, and he was eventually prodded into replying to the charges. He published affidavits from reputable men with personal knowledge of the entire series of events. And he himself verified the accuracy of the story from beginning to frustrating end. Signing the affidavits were Joseph Pearson, Ransom Christopher, Dr. Shaw, William Taylor, and police officer Patrick McElroy, all well-known and respected residents of Memphis. There was a final episode to the story. Several days after the jar was stolen, Claire Robertson attended a seance to try to learn what the jar had contained. According to the newspaper reports of the event, Clara went into a trance. While in this state, she communed with the spirit of Lizzie Davis, the little girl in the pink dress who told her that the jar had held $2,000 in gold coins, a diamond necklace, a set of gold jewelry, and an envelope of, quote, valuable papers. The treasure had presumably been buried during the war, that is the Civil War, to protect it from Yankee seizure. The identity of one of the thieves was also revealed during the seance, the report said, but he was never apprehended. Memphis gradually returned to normal 
and the interest of its citizens turned to other things. Occasionally, something would happen to remind them of the great jar mystery, and they would speculate about the whole strange series of happenings again. Such a reminder occurred in 1876 when 18-year-old Clara Robertson married a wealthy 72-year-old man. They went to Philadelphia to the Centennial Exposition on their honeymoon and they reportedly settled in Vandale, Arkansas, where they reared several children. In later years, Clara was described as a pleasant, jolly woman who liked to entertain listeners with stories of the spirit of Lizzie Davis and of the mysterious glass jar. She also told of having in her possession letters from President U.S. Grant and even Queen Victoria expressing interest in the girl ghost and the jar. The building that had housed the Brinkley Female College stood in Memphis until it was demolished and moved to Jonesboro, Arkansas in the summer of 1972 by Jim Williams, a Memphis businessman. In its last years, the house had become a shabby, run-down tenement cut up into small apartments and cheap rental rooms. Yet, despite its peeling paint and rotting timbers, despite the rubbish scattered in what had once been formal gardens, it retained indelible marks of dignity and beauty. The six tall columns across the front porch, the upstairs balcony above the wide entryway, the graceful cupola on the sloping roof proclaimed it as a building that had once really been something. The mansion had been built by a Colonel Davis, also spelled in old records, Davy and Davidson, who apparently sold it after the death of his beloved little daughter, Lizzie. Lizzie was buried in Winchester Cemetery, a site now converted into a public park and playground. Land for the city cemetery was donated by Memphis's first mayor, Marcus Winchester, in about 1828. In 1931, when the cemetery was made into a park, information on all the tombstones was recorded before the graves were moved. These cemetery records, filed in the Memphis collection at the public library, Include in their listings the Davis child, daughter of J.D. Davis, died October 6, 1863. The official records don't say, though, but there is a handed down story in Memphis that the Davis child was buried in a pink dress because it was her very favorite dress. The front of that little pink dress, they say, was stained by the juice of ripe strawberries, which the child had spilled on it 
the day she died. Today, where that house once stood is now a warehouse office building. Some of the people who have worked there over the years have claimed to have had mysterious happenings. Papers flying off desks by themselves, staplers moving around on their own, the sound of little footsteps when the sun goes down outside. Is little Lizzie still strolling around in her strawberry-stained dress, that little pink dress that was her favorite? Is she still looking for her special Memphis jar? Perhaps one day someone might see her again, and one day she might just be reunited with her precious, precious treasure. I hope you enjoyed that creepy little tale. And if you're ever in Memphis, you talk to some of the residents there, just especially the older residents, maybe try asking them about that old Memphis jar story and see if they still remember it today. It's a great little ghost story to share and keep alive. Well, boys and girls, that's my creepy story for tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Tune in again later in a few weeks when I come back with some more ghostly tales or maybe even some gruesome stories of the macabre. We'll have to see what I have up my scary sleeve. (laughs) But until then, don't forget to check out myhaunteddolls.com and my YouTube channel. Or if you'd like to help out and donate financially to help better our podcast and our YouTube channel, go to patreon.com forward slash my haunted dolls and you can do a one-time donation or set up a monthly donation any help you want to provide is appreciated i'm kevin kane and this has been the haunted collection happy hauntings